Good evening, and welcome back to our Bible study in 1 Corinthians. I wanted to remind you that we're in the middle of 30 days of focused prayer as we reset our 10-year vision here at First Baptist. Uh, so if you're not already subscribed to my daily prayer email, here's what I want you to do. Go to our website uh, on the main page. Go to the tab that says Growing. When you click on that, in uh, the, the drop-down menu, you'll see an option that says First Moments Devotionals. If you'll select that, that'll take you to a page where you can subscribe. And every day, except for Sunday, you'll get an email from me with a, a prayer prompt, and you can pray along with us. These are the four things we're praying about for the next 30 days. We're praying for ourselves, saying, Lord, show me how to make a difference in someone's life today. We're praying for our relationships saying, show us, Lord, how show us the transforming relationships you want us to be a part of. Um, we're praying for our church. Lord, use FBC to, be, uh, uh, to bring peace to the chaos in our community in Montgomery County and around the world. And then we're praying for our community as well. Lord, bring healing to the brokenness in our community and bring those who are wandering in darkness to their light, to, to your light. Um, so every day you'll receive a prayer prompt. It'll have a little devotional that I've written, some scripture, and then those four prayer requests uh, for you to pray alongside us. So we are in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 16. And by the way, before we move on, it's great to be back in person and worship on Saturday and Sunday. I just found that incredibly refreshing. And we'd only been away from each other for about five weeks um, so it made me think, as I was driving away after the third service on Sunday, it made me think, what's it going to be like when we're in heaven? And for the first time, we worship Christ together uh, in person. I mean, that's real in-person worship because Christ is going to be there in person because we're going to be in the real presence of God. And I thought, you know, we often think about heaven being a place where we're reunited with our loved ones who've gone before. And that's true. But it's even better than that, because not only will we get together with them, but we're going to worship. We're going we're gonna to rejoice in the presence of the one who loves us. So there's your little mini sermon. Please don't turn this off, because we do have a Bible study that I'm excited about. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 1 through 16. And I'm without any real introduction, I'm just going to jump into the first verse. Verse 1 says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So it's almost comical. Paul has written this letter to the Corinthians in response to a letter they wrote to him. We don't have the letter the Corinthians wrote. We don't really know specifically what it said, what questions it asked. I find it comical. I'm sure Paul didn't mean it to be funny, but very humorous that Paul is seven chapters in before he finally addresses the things the Corinthians asked him about. To me, that says, okay, you've got things on your mind, but there's more important things to talk about. The unity of the church, for instance. That was the whole first four chapters. In chapter six that we just got done with, he talks about sexuality and talks about how the body is not your own and, and what you do with your body matters to God. So that's what we talked about last week. But now he's going to address a specific question that the Corinthians have asked. And if you have your Bible open, I hope you do. If you don't, you're not going to get as much out of this study. But if you have your Bible open, you may notice if you have certain uh, a particular translation of the Scripture, 
that statement, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman or to touch a woman, is in quotation marks. It is in my Bible, which is an English Standard Version. Um, it's also in the NIV. There are some others that don't. Why is it in quotation marks? Who is Paul quoting? Well, my assumption is that the scholars who translated it figured that Paul was quoting the Corinthians, that they had written him a letter to say, hey, it's good for a man not to have sex with his wife or, or with a woman, period, right? And Paul is saying, okay, yeah, but, but, now wait a second. Why would they even be saying this? Verse 26, which we're going to look at in more detail next week, says this. It says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So if you're wondering why the Corinthians would think it's good for a man and a woman not to have sex, there was some kind of crisis going on in Corinth at that time. There was some situation, some distress uh, that made them think, hey, we don't have time for this. So what was it? We don't know. Uh, some people think it was persecution, that there were people being arrested, there were people being martyred for the faith. And so the Corinthians were saying, hey, it's better not to have a wife, it's better not to have a husband, because if, if I'm married, I'm less likely to be brave enough to stand up for Jesus, because I don't want to leave my husband, my wife, uh, widowed if I get martyred. And that makes a lot of sense. Problem is, there's no evidence that the Corinthian Christians at that time in their history were experiencing persecution, and Paul doesn't really talk about persecution anywhere else in the letter. The second possibility is that the present crisis is referring to some kind of natural disaster. Uh, the Roman historian Tacitus talks about some earthquakes that happened around that time. There is also evidence that archaeologists have found that the city of Corinth and that region was experiencing famine. Um, so here's the way the logic works. Jesus in Matthew and Mark both, uh, actually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talks about in the end times there are going to be bad things that happen. Uh, there are going to be famines. There are going to be earthquakes. There's going to be natural disasters of various kinds. Um, and in Mark specifically, Mark 13, 17, he said, it's going to be so bad in those days if you're a pregnant woman or a nursing mother, which some have pointed out showed incredible sensitivity on the part of Jesus that he's thinking about these women in the future and, and how hard it's going to be for them to flee Jerusalem or for them to uh, escape the authorities. My point is, Perhaps, you hear that word perhaps, this is total, total speculation, perhaps uh, the Corinthian Christians saw these natural disasters taking place, famines, earthquakes, and they said, oh, we must be in the end times. Well, Jesus said it's better if you're not pregnant during those times, it's better if you don't have children, so let's abstain from sex, even within marriage, because we don't want to get pregnant right now, because it would just be really bad, really inconvenient. That's a possibility. Regardless of the circumstances, okay, now I'm done speculating, regardless of the circumstances, the Corinthians were asking Paul something about the subject of sex and marriage, sex within marriage, sex outside of marriage, and his commands in this chapter, we're going to take two weeks to look at this chapter, his commands in this chapter may surprise you. So let's pick up with verse 2. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality. So Paul's basically agreeing with them. Yes, it is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. But, 
he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So in other words, Paul is agreeing. There is a place for celibacy. There's a place for abstaining from sex, but because we're made to desire the opposite sex, and most people uh, most people can't live that lifelong celibate life. That's just not how we're wired. It's better for us to find a spouse and to, uh, to be married. Now he goes on. Here's the part that will surprise you. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, the English translators have used some euphemisms there. So let me just be blunt about what Paul's saying. Paul's saying if you're married, you should be having sex with each other. You, as a husband, should consider it your responsibility to fulfill your wife's sexual desires, and you, as a woman, should see it as your responsibility to fulfill your husband's sexual desires. And the reason that should surprise us, or that it will surprise us, is because that's not the way Christians have been seen in the past. Tim Keller talks about how when Christianity first arose, the Romans thought the Christians were weird because, as he puts it, Romans were very stingy with their money, but they were generous with their bodies. They kept all their money for themselves, but they'd have sex with anyone and everyone. That was just the Roman sexual ethic, especially if you were a man. But the, the Christians were the opposite. The Christians were generous with their money, but stingy with their bodies. So a Christian would gladly give away all his possessions like Barnabas does in the book of Acts when he sells his inherited land and gives it all to the church. Man, no Roman would do that. Where's the payoff in that? But those same Christians would restrict themselves, would abstain from sex until they were married. And the Romans thought that was crazy. Why would you do that? And yet, isn't it amazing that such a seemingly nonsensical ethic won out? Christianity won out. The gospel is just that compelling. And, and Keller also points out, he, he talks about he, has, uh, he had a friend who was a, a professor of American history at Yale University. You know, I, I, I don't travel in those kinds of, uh, in that kind of company, Tim Keller does. But um, so this professor of American history was telling him, back in the 1950s, he wrote a book about the American Puritans. And the Puritans we all think of as being very serious and sober and, and just basically uh, no one should ever have any fun ever. But he said this guy wrote a, a book about the Puritans in America and their, specifically their views on sex. And he wanted to publish an article about it in the Yale Review, the literary magazine of Yale University. And they wouldn't publish the article. Why? Because it was considered too graphic. His point is... We think of, of Christians, uh, especially evangelical Christians, as being very sexually repressed. If we are, it's not because the Bible made us that way. It's because of Victorian values that we inherited from England in the 1800s. It's not because of anything in Scripture. Those American Puritans were very frank about sexuality. They were very frank about our bodies and, and what we're supposed to do with them within marriage. And he says they were that way because the Bible's that way. So there are parts of the scripture that I find it hard to preach about, not because I don't love them, but because I know that 
people in the congregation are going to find them embarrassing. Parents are going to say, Jeff, I'm not ready to have these conversations with my kids. I've never preached a sermon out of the Song of Solomon. In Proverbs 5, when God commands us to, uh, commands husbands to be enraptured with the bodies of our wives uh, and and various places where the Bible is very frank about sex, I have to really do uh, some thinking and praying before I even mention those in church because uh, in a lot of ways we're not emotionally ready for that. So all of that to say, Scripture, instead of, rather than being very repressive towards sex, Scripture celebrates it. Uh, God sees it as very important within marriage. It's, it's created to bond a man and a woman together. And regardless of what you've been told, God does not think that sex is just a way for humans to reproduce Otherwise, he wouldn't say what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. Don't deny each other. Husbands and wives don't deny each other. Now, let me issue a clarification. Husbands especially, don't read this verse or this passage to mean that your wife can never refuse you. Don't, for goodness sakes, don't quote me, don't quote Paul and say, see, you have to give me what I want because that's not love. That is not a loving attitude, and it's not going to help anything, I can promise you. What this is saying is not that you can never refuse each other. What it's saying is that it's part of your responsibility to one another, to fulfill one another sexually. That is a key part of the marriage relationship. There's another side to this, though, and we may miss this. Marital faithfulness is implied, especially for, for husbands. In the ancient world... And and this is something I found out as I was studying for this. In Roman weddings, brides were often told, listen, if your husband visits a prostitute, it doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It's just that you can't fully fulfill his needs and he's got to get his needs met. So just be ready for that. Can you imagine on your wedding day as a young woman hearing this? And yet Paul says something revolutionary. This is the only place... uh, in all of ancient literature where, there, where it's commanded to husbands, your body is not your own. Your body belongs to your wife. And the implication there is it belongs to your wife alone. No other woman. No other woman has that uh, prerogative, that privilege. Um, your body belongs to her. Her body belongs to you. And that is important to God. That's an important part of your relationship with the Lord. Now, he moves on in verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, this is a part, this is a passage that was never preached to me when I was growing up and would surprise, I think, a lot of Christians. Paul says, I wish that everybody could be like me. I wish everybody had this gift that I have. What gift is he talking about? He's talking about his singleness. Now, he's just gotten through talking about how wonderful sex is within the marriage relationship and and how it's a a gift from God. But now he says there's there's another gift, a gift that I have that I treasure, and that is the gift of singleness. Paul uh, was created with a calling to never marry a lifelong call to celibacy. And I never heard about this growing up. Uh, You know, growing up, I just assumed that when you got to a certain age, you got married, period. 
The only people I knew who expressed a lifelong call to celibacy were Catholic priests and nuns, and I thought that was weird and strange and a totally Catholic thing. I remember my first year of seminary, I, I, was, I, I worked a part-time job on the maintenance staff of a church there in town in Fort Worth, and there was a guy who was on the crew with me, and his name was also Jeff, and he was a little older than me. He was already in his 30s, but single, and I was here, I was 20, 23 or 22 and already married, and so I said to him one day, well, you know, Jeff, someday you're going to meet the woman God has planned for you all along, and you'll fall in love and get married. And he stopped me short. He said, you know, I don't think that God has anybody for me. I believe that I'm called to be single for my whole life and to serve him wholeheartedly. And I'd never heard anyone say that before. And I thought back at that point, because in college, in my college days, I, I had been very active in the Baptist Student Union. And our associate BSU director was a, was a woman named Brenda, and she was single. And not single because she was unappealing. She was a very attractive woman, a very uh, fun-loving, intelligent woman, a woman who would have, been, uh, would have made any man happy as a wife. And yet, I, I saw her a few years ago. Brenda's still single. And yet, I don't see anything in Brenda's life that says she's deprived or she's lacking or her life is incomplete. Uh, so this idea this social pressure we put on people, especially within the church, that when you get past your 20s or when you get into your 20s, you better start looking for a mate. That's totally unbiblical. We should celebrate marriage. We should honor marriage. Absolutely. But is marriage for everyone? No. And there are some people who are called to singleness, to celibacy. And Paul talks about why later. We'll get to that next week. So he goes on. Here's the last part we'll look at today. Verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I and not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Don't get hung up on those two uh, parenthetical statements. I didn't say this, the Lord said it. No, the Lord didn't say this, I said it. Some people have read that to say, oh, well, one part is more authoritative than the other. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's simply saying, when it comes to the subject of divorce, we have the command of Jesus Christ himself. When it comes to the idea of what, what, a, what a brother should do with a wife who's an unbeliever, Jesus never taught about that, so I'm giving you my command. But Paul's an apostle. He would tell you, a command I give is a command from the Lord. So, pick up with verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, there's a lot in those verses. First of all, though, we just need to acknowledge there were, it's obvious there were, there were people in the Corinthian church who were married to unbelievers. And we can see how that would happen. These were people who had come to Christ as adults. A woman becomes a believer in Jesus, but her husband doesn't. A man comes to Christ because one of his co-workers is a Christian, but his wife doesn't. 
And, and there was a question of what should we do? How should we respond? What is the rule at this point if you're married? Aren't you a, a new creation in Christ? Does that mean your old bonds are dissolved? You're no longer a married person anymore? Now, let me just acknowledge that divorce, the teaching about divorce in the Bible is complicated. There are a lot of different things said about divorce in Scripture. And people of goodwill, people who have an equal reverence for God and an equal belief in the authority of Scripture, can read all the same Scriptures and disagree profoundly. I mean, let me show you what I mean. So, the very beginning of the Bible says that a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh. But then a couple of books later, in the law of Moses, Moses gives men permission to divorce their wives by writing out a certificate of divorce. Jesus later comes along and says Jesus, that, that Moses gave you permission because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, that's not God's ideal, but God understands you're sinners, and this is going to happen sometimes. Um, in Malachi, the prophet Malachi said that God hates divorce. That's a pretty strong statement. But in Ezra, we see the, the priest Ezra coming to a group of Israelite men who've married non-Israelite women and forcing them to divorce their wives. We see uh, in Jeremiah 3.8 that God considers, well, all through the Old Testament, we see that God considers Israel his bride. And yet in Jeremiah 3.8, God says, I wrote her a certificate of divorce. So in, in that metaphorical way, God is a divorced man. God knows the pain of divorce. Jesus said in Matthew 19.9 that divorce was only permissible in cases of unfaithfulness. And there's been a lot of debate. What did Jesus mean by unfaithfulness? Was that only if someone specifically sexually cheats on you? Or does that mean some other kind of immorality? Uh, does that mean that a woman who's being verbally or physically abused is justified in divorcing? People have debated these things. Uh, and now we get to Paul's statement on this subject. And, and remember, this is regarding a specific scenario. He's getting questions about what do we do when we're unequally yoked? How do we handle it? So Paul's response is, if you are, are married and your husband or wife is an unbeliever, don't leave. Don't leave. Now, they may have thought, the Corinthians may have thought that just like the, the Jews in, Israel, in Ezra's time had married unbelievers uh, so they should get divorced, Paul says, no, that's not the case. We're in a new day. We're not Israel anymore. We're in the kingdom of God. And we should stick by this person that we've yoked ourselves to. He says also, though, if your spouse leaves, you're no longer bound. So in other words, if you're doing your best to make the marriage work and your spouse gives up, then God does not hold you responsible. In other words, when he says you're no longer bound or enslaved, he means you're free to remarry. Um, so that's an important teaching. And, and it's important to note, Paul taught here and elsewhere, Christians should only marry other believers. Christians should always be equally yoked. But a Christian spouse in an unequally yoked situation, a Christian spouse has a chance of winning their non-Christian spouse to salvation. So you can understand these, let's say it was a Christian woman in the first century in Corinth who had come to know Christ and her husband didn't. 
And her husband was giving her a hard time because I don't, I don't understand why you're going to this place on Sundays and, and doing these strange rituals. I don't know why you're all of a sudden acting differently and praying to a different God than I do. And there was pressure. There was division, which is the very reason why Paul said we shouldn't be unequally yoked. I mean, my experience and the scriptures say it's either going to make you, it's either going to draw you away from your spouse or your spouse is going to draw you away from Christ. But Paul's point is, if you're already married then don't focus on how can I get out of this? Focus on how can I win them? How can I win that other person to Christ? Peter would come along and say that the way a woman wins her husband to the Lord is not by nagging, but by a gentle and quiet spirit. In other words, by, by showing that husband, I love you with the love of Jesus and winning him in that way. And I think the same would apply to a, to a Christian man who's married to a non-Christian woman. Your spouse, if you're, an, if you're a Christian and they're not, your spouse should say, you know, they're a better spouse, they're a better husband or wife to me now that, they're now that they belong to Jesus than they were before. And that's one way we win them. Now, it's very, very hard to understand what he means when he says, uh, your children, in verse 14, if you leave, your children will be unclean, but as for now, they're holy. What on earth is he talking about there? You ready for this? I don't know. And I can admit that the best, the best thing I've read, the, the most likely interpretation I've read is that what he's saying is don't leave because if you do, you're cutting your children off from perhaps the only contact they'll have with the gospel. Don't leave because if you have children, you want them to come to know Christ and they're much more likely to come to know Christ if you're still around. And you might say, well, I'll just take the kids with me and leave my husband or leave my wife. Well, you know, even forgetting or laying aside uh, legal issues and whether you can do that or not, think about it. If you demonstrate to your children, I love your father, I love your mother, even though we disagree profoundly, that testifies of the love of Christ. In other words, in other words, it is very biblical to say, this marriage is not fulfilling to me, but I'm staying for the sake of my children. I'm going to work on this for the sake of my kids. I'm going to work on this for the sake of my spouse who's not a believer. I'm getting grief from him, from her, but I'm going to love them with the love of Jesus. So we want, this is what's frustrating. We want a definitive rule. That's, that's the reason a lot of us read the scriptures. We want rules for life, and we want things spelled out in black and white. We want a definitive rule regarding divorce. But like I said, people of good faith disagree on what the Bible specifically teaches on divorce. Can we all agree on these three things, though? Three things. Number one, God wants every marriage to work. I don't think any of us can find any evidence to the contrary that God, God wants us to make marriage work as best we can. The second thing, people who are divorced are no less loved. They're no less useful to God. See, I, for, for centuries and even today in some quarters, people who got divorces were treated as a special category of sinners. That divorce was treated as an unforgivable sin, in sort, not one that could keep you out of heaven, but one that certainly disqualified you from serving God in certain ways. I think the scriptural evidence to back that up is very, very slim if it's there at all. Um, in fact, when I read the scriptures, what I see is that when a couple, when a marriage ends, God isn't so much angry at that husband and wife as he is sorrowful for them. 
and I've walked with a lot of couples through the process of divorce, tried my best to counsel them, tried my best to help intervene, to, to hold them together. And every single time I see sorrow, I see pain, I see misery. I've never once seen anybody rejoice because they got a divorce. On the other hand, I've seen so many say, oh, I wish it could have been different. I wish I would have taken this step or, or that step, or I wish we would have had this intervention. I wish we would have tried counseling sooner. All that to say, God does not hate you for your divorce. God loves you. God loves you just as much. God can use you just as much. But then the third thing, if we see marriage as a tool for our own personal self-advancement, self-fulfillment, it's probably not going to work. I can give you lots of advice about marriage. I've been married uh, 28 years now, and I've learned a lot. I'm working on a book about it right now. But if I had to gel down my marriage advice to one statement, it would be this. The more you see marriage as a tool for your own personal self-fulfillment, the less likely it is to work. On the other hand, the more you see marriage as an opportunity to glorify God, the more likely it is that your marriage is going to not just survive, but thrive. And what do I mean by glorify God? How can marriage glorify God? Three ways, and then we're done. Number one, God uses marriage to purify us of our, unselfish, of our selfishness. I, I know that there are a lot of examples I could use from my own life, but one example I would share with you is when Carrie and I were first married, that was the first time in my life I ever realized I had a problem with anger. I had this tendency to, I wasn't a violent person, but I had this tendency to yell and holler and get all red in the face and throw things. Uh, if things didn't go my way, my attitude was my anger is something that I need to express or it's going to burn up inside me. Now, my wife had grown up and she, and she was a very gentle person, a very kind and sweet person. She didn't want to be around someone who was acting like that. And I realized very quickly, you know, every time I get mad, I'm hurting her, even if I'm not saying anything bad about her, although sometimes I was. Even if I'm never laying hands on her, which thank God I didn't, I'm still hurting her. I'm still driving her away. And I realized I, I, I have to change. And I began to pray. See, in the first year of our marriage, this is the way I look at it, God and my wife teamed up on me and changed me in, some, in one area of my life. Not to say that I'm perfect now and never lose my temper, but man, I am so much more patient than I used to be so much more mature in how I handle insults and disappointments. Uh, so God uses marriage to purge us of selfishness. Marriage is a tool for discipleship in his hands. Number two, God uses us as a witness to our spouse. Again, if you're married to an unbeliever, then you are the Christian he, is most, he or she is most closely connected to. Nobody has a greater chance to show them the glory of God than you do. So let God show your spouse through the growth in you how great the gospel is. And even if your spouse is saved, you are still a witness to them because you are the one who, as you grow in Christ, inspires them to greater growth in Christ. And then number three, we can use our marriage to glorify God because marriage is a picture of the union of Jesus with his people. Marriage is a picture of our future. And you notice in the New Testament how often Jesus talks about the end times, the return of, of Jesus. He talks about it as the marriage feast. 
it's going to be a great celebration. Uh, in, in the ancient world, marriage feasts were the biggest party of the year. That was, that was where you ate the best food and drank the best wine and, and saw old friends and met new people and, and had a good time. But it's more than that. It's more than just saying that heaven is going to be like a big party, which it will be. It will be a celebration. It will be a time of great joy. But it's more than that. God is talking about the fact that, that sex within marriage, which is for a lot of us, uh, uh, for all of us who are married, it is an experience of, that is unlike any other. It is something that brings great pleasure and joy. Jesus is saying that's a picture of the union of you and me. That is how much I look forward to our coming together. So the pleasure you experience in sex on earth is just a brief foretaste of the joy you'll feel when you're connected, united with your Savior. In the same way that a husband who's rapturously in love with his fiancée can't wait for the wedding day, that's how much Jesus can't wait for the day we're connected to him in heaven. And in the same way that you eat a salad before a steak dinner and you say, oh, that's pretty good, but I'm ready for that filet mignon, in the same way within marriage when you have sex with your spouse and you enjoy it you think yeah but someday we're going to experience something that's going to put that in the dust isn't it good to know that god has not just provided for us down here on earth something beautiful but he has far greater things planned for the future now i hope i did a good job these are not easy subjects if you have questions contact me email me call me because I'd love to discuss this with you further. Next week, we'll get into the rest of chapter seven. But thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.